Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is The IRA on the Offensive, Easter 1920, The War of Independence, Part 10. As the title suggests, this episode looks at the dramatic increase in IRA attacks in the spring of 1920, focusing on the pivotal events of Easter that year, when hundreds of police barracks were attacked A mass hunger strike began in Mountjoy Jail in Dublin, which would then lead to a general strike across Ireland. To round up the episode, then we head to County Armagh, where the Newry Brigade of the IRA launched what was one of the largest and most sophisticated attacks in the war to date. Now from this point on, the series will not be as chronological as it has been. This is because from 1920, there's simply too much happening at any one time to maintain a chronological structure. So this episode doesn't cover any of the pivotal events happening in Belfast, Derry or Cork during the first half of 1920. The coming shows will tackle this. So part 11 looks at the North and the war in Belfast and Derry in particular. Then episode 12 focuses on Cork. Finally, don't forget to check out the shop. This week, we've added dozens of new products, including a range of books chosen to complement not only this series, but past series in the podcast as well. You can find all that at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. As always, additional research was by the archivist and historian Sam McGrath. Sound was by Jason Looney. Additional narrations are by Aidan Crone, Therese Murray. And the artwork for the series is by Keith Hines. After darkness fell on St. Valentine's Night, 1920, dozens of IRA volunteers converged on the small village of Shantona, outside Ballytrain in County Monaghan. They included Ernie O'Malley, who had been sent by the General Headquarters staff to help organise the IRA in the county, and the local brigade commandant, Owen O'Duffy, who, among other things, would become the first leader of Fine Gael. Splitting into three groups, they surrounded the small RIC barracks in the town. While two groups took up positions to cover the front and rear of the building, a third group, led by O'Duffy, entered a house that adjoined the barracks. 
While gunfire echoed through the darkness for several hours, the dull thud of crowbars and hammers could be heard from the house as the IRA tunnelled through the walls into the barracks. Eventually, the IRA stopped firing and Owen O'Duffy, using a loud hater, informed the constables explosives had been placed in a breach they had made in the wall. He offered them the chance to surrender, but each call was answered with gunshots, so O'Duffy gave the signal to detonate the charge. The blast nearly collapsed the barracks building, blowing a huge hole in the gable wall, and the constables immediately surrendered. The IRA volunteers entered the ruined barracks and removed all weapons before withdrawing. This action was part of a new, more aggressive IRA strategy, which had officially been adopted on January 1st, 1920, as the organisation's general headquarters had issued orders to begin offensive actions against Crown forces in Ireland. Across the island, brigades began to launch attacks on the Royal Irish Constabulary. Direct assaults like the one at Chantona increased. Predictably, in retaliation, the authorities had stepped up their repression. They launched large-scale raids and arrests of Republicans. Owen O'Duffy, for example, was arrested in March 1920 and imprisoned in Crumlin Road Jail in Belfast. With such a fraught start to the year, many began to wonder what would happen at Easter 1920, the most important time in the Republican calendar when commemorations of the 1916 Rising took place. Such was the tension in 1920 that some in positions of power feared the IRA would launch an all-out revolt to mark the fourth anniversary of the Rising. Across the Irish Sea in Britain, the Liberal Party MP Clement Edwards heard reports that Irish communities in major British cities were also going to join this uprising. So concerned was Edwards that he asked the Prime Minister Lloyd George in the House of Commons. I ask whether information has come to the government that a rising has been planned for Ireland on the 5th of April. Whether information has come to the government that local risings have been planned for the same date in Liverpool, Manchester and Glasgow. Whether any seizure of arms or ammunition from Germany has been made by His Majesty's Navy. And whether the government have any reason to suppose that the German Secret Service is behind the planned rising. This was all fanciful. If anything, it displayed a limited understanding of the 1916 rising the Republican movement and the nature of the war in Ireland. The IRA had no intention of organising a rebellion along the lines of the 1916 Rising. In 1920, they had nothing to gain from it. If anything, it would have been counterproductive. The strength of the IRA campaign to date had been the fact that it was waging a guerrilla war which played to its strengths. They had said as much in Antogluck, the organisation's newspaper, in January 1920. It is an axiom of warfare that one must reserve one's strength in order to strike when and where one is able to do so most effectively. A force greatly inferior to the enemy can ultimately render his position in the country untenable by the adoption of guerrilla tactics. Nevertheless, the IRA had planned a major operation for Easter weekend that would have a huge psychological impact on the British Army, the authorities and the Royal Irish Constabulary across Ireland. While Ian Macpherson, the Chief Secretary for Ireland, had informed the House of Commons that there had been 25 attacks on police barracks up to St. Patrick's Day in 1920, this would prove to be the calm before the Easter storm. Over Easter weekend in 1920, which fell on the 3rd and 4th of April, under orders from General Headquarters, IRA brigades 
burned out over 200 Royal Irish Constabulary stations across the island. Alongside the onslaught against these barracks, over 100 tax offices were attacked and the files burned, while telegraph wires across the country were also cut. The IRA were clearly undermining the very basics of how the British government functioned in Ireland. In England, the Illustrated Police News, a sensationalist publication littered with crime-related stories, captured the scale of these events. Easter Tide has witnessed scenes of disorder in Ireland on a scale unprecedented since the Easter Revolt of 1916. The rising, prophesied in some quarters, has not taken place, but reports from all the country show that the guerrilla warfare advocated by Sinn Féin is becoming more widespread and more intense. The government themselves were clearly rattled. There were calls for more widespread use of the army in day-to-day policing. Always reticent to acknowledge Ireland was in a state of war, the Attorney General for Ireland, Dennis Henry, had little option but to admit the reality of the situation when he addressed Parliament on the matter. One might almost call it war. In one night, 250 empty constabulary barracks were destroyed. In most instances, by explosives. I do not think I am exaggerating when I say that those outrages could not have been carried out by fewer than a 100 men, in respect of each barrack. And that would represent a total of 25,000 men practically under arms in that one night. While his estimate of 25,000 volunteers might be an exaggeration, there was no doubt the action had involved thousands of people. That said, while there was no question it had been an impressive operation, much of the sensational coverage overplayed the strength of the IRA. The reality was that most of the RIC barracks had been evacuated late in 1919, when the authorities had consolidated their position into larger barracks and stations. Nevertheless, it was important for several reasons. Firstly, by destroying the buildings, it made any reoccupation more difficult in future. Secondly, it allowed brigades to get volunteers involved in activity that was ultimately low risk, given there was no one defending the buildings. Finally, the impact this had on the wider population must have been considerable. The fact that police barracks had been burned out in towns and villages across Ireland symbolised how power was passing from the British authorities to the Republican movement. While this was a huge psychological blow to the authorities, in the days following the Easter onslaught, events in Mountjoy Jail in Dublin plunged the entire administration in Ireland deeper into crisis. As we heard earlier, an increase in IRA attacks in early 1920 had led to large-scale arrests across Ireland of known and suspected IRA activists. Jails across the island began to fill up while leading figures were shipped to prisons in England. However, the authorities had very little, if any, evidence against many of these people who were essentially being held without trial. Among those arrested was Padre Clancy, the Vice Commandant of the Dublin Brigade of the IRA, who we met in passing in Episode 8. William O'Brien, the Secretary of the Irish Trade Union Congress, was also arrested in early March and shipped to Wormwood Scrubs in England. However, on March the 18th, he started a hunger strike against his incarceration and the authorities released him eight days later. Protests and tensions were also rising in Mountjoy Jail in Dublin. On Good Friday, April the 2nd, the Republican prisoners there 
smashed up the furniture in their cells and then proceeded to break down the dividing walls between individual cells in protest against the conditions under which they were being held. They demanded that they should be recognised as prisoners of war and afforded better rights and conditions. When this was refused, they upped the ante and started a hunger strike. This began on Easter Sunday when over 30 prisoners refused food in the jail. The following day, another 30 joined and in a matter of days, 90 Republicans in Mountjoy prison were on hunger strike. This strategy was extremely risky to say the least. It's almost impossible to predict exactly how long a prisoner on hunger strike will survive after they start to refuse food. While healthy adults can last more than 10 weeks before death, a prisoner with an underlying condition can begin to decline in a matter of days. Now, intervention by the authorities through force feeding was not only dangerous but very controversial in Ireland in the early 20th century. The Republican hunger striker Thomas Ashe had been killed by prison doctors in Mount Joy when they botched an attempt to force feed him in 1917. This is covered in part three of the series. In Mount Joy, given the scale of the hunger strike with over 90 prisoners refusing food, it was little surprise that some were already severely weakened within a week of the protest starting. The House of Commons was told by the Attorney General for Ireland, Dennis Henry. The prison boards report that the condition of all of the prisoners on hunger strike in Mount Joy Prison this morning was weak and some were nearing the danger zone. Within days, the crisis created by the hunger strikes was seeping beyond the prison walls as well. Highly charged, emotive demonstrations led by large numbers of relatives and friends of the hunger strikers took place outside the jail. On April the 12th, an estimated 10,000 people had gathered in front of Mount Joy, which was surrounded by a military cordon. Even more significantly, on that same day, April the 12th, the Resident Committee of the Irish Trade Union Congress had met in Dublin to discuss the matter. Their intervention transformed the issue into a national crisis when they issued a call to their 500,000 members to come out on general strike in support of the hunger-striking prisoners. You are called upon to act swiftly and suddenly to save a hundred dauntless men. At this hour, their lives are hanging by a thread in a Bastille. These men, for the greater part our fellow workers and comrades in our trade unions, have been forcibly taken from their homes and their families and imprisoned without charge or, if charged, tried under exceptional laws for alleged offences of a political character in outrageous defiance of every canon of justice. On the following day, April the 13th, all towns and cities were shut down. The one exception to this was the northeast, where sectarian divisions around Belfast hamstrung working-class politics at the time. Elsewhere, where businesses tried to open, strike committees organised in towns across the island forcibly closed them down. Meanwhile, in the jail, some of the prisoners were growing weaker and weaker, and the authorities feared some would die. Were this to happen, with the country in the grip of a general strike, it would inflame a situation already on the brink. They also feared an international backlash, particularly in the US, where Eamon de Valera was touring the country and speaking to large audiences. With little option, they set about trying to defuse the situation in Mount Joy Prison, but this only served to reveal the scale of incompetency at the heart of the British administration in Dublin. After deciding they would try and negotiate an end to the strike, the British authorities 
offered the Republican prisoners in Mountjoy Jail the prisoner of war status they had demanded. However, at this point, Pather Clancy, the IRA officer in command of the Republican prisoners in the jail, took a bold step when he rejected this offer. He shifted their demand, now saying the strike would only end if prisoners were released. This was increasingly high-stakes poker given several of the prisoners were growing extremely weak. Clancy, however, had to factor in other concerns. The authorities in Mountjoy had not yet identified some of the prisoners, and when they did, they would face charges that carried the death penalty. So he was eager to get them out of the jail. The authorities, increasingly fearful about what would happen if someone were to die, decided to settle on Clancy's new terms. But through ours, they ended up giving the Republicans even more than they had demanded. Clancy's demand had been to release all prisoners who were interned without trial. Even he didn't think it was possible to get those already convicted in courts released. However, due to an error, the authorities would end up releasing 30 prisoners who had convictions. Now, somewhat inevitably, once this happened, Republican prisoners in other jails followed suit, and the crisis at the heart of the administration that this created escalated. In Crumlin Road Jail in Belfast, Owen O'Duffy, who we met at the start of the episode, led prisoners on a hunger strike. The results were similar, with dozens of Republicans being released, including O'Duffy himself. In Wormwood Scrubs outside London, no less than 200 Irish Republicans secured their release through a hunger strike. In the aftermath of these mass releases, the British administration in Dublin reached rock bottom in many ways. It was true they were facing a very formidable, popular and dynamic opponent in the Republican movement. But from the Viceroy, Lord John French, down, there were several key officials who were clearly incompetent and unable for the task facing them. Lord Robert Cecil, a prominent Conservative politician, reflected on the affair in the House of Lords. I cannot feel helping that... The result has been still further to weaken the executive authority of the government in Ireland. For the Crown forces on the ground in Ireland, it was demoralising and humiliating. It appeared to them that arresting Republicans had limited value if they were just going to be released a few weeks later. The legacy of the Mountjoy hunger strikes was considerable. While leading Republicans like Owen O'Duffy and Pather Clancy were released to return to their Republican activism, this situation would not last into the future. It led the British government to adopt a hardline position with hunger strikers in later 1920. This framed one of the most famous chapters in the war when they faced an equally determined Republican in the form of Terence McSweeney, the Lord Mayor of Cork, who led 10 other Republicans on hunger strike in Cork prison later that year. This will be covered in episode 13. While this hunger strike and then the destruction of over 200 barracks over Easter weekend were hugely important IRA victories, the nature of the war being fought on the ground in local communities was also intensifying at this point. The assaults on the Royal Irish Constabulary were growing in scale. In some places they were becoming full-scale battles. The war had come a long way from the early months of 1919. While this series could not hope to detail every ambush, we'll now take a look at one of these bigger raids to get a sense of what was happening by the middle of 1920. This was a full-scale assault on the RAC barracks at Newtown Hamilton by the Newry Brigade of the IRA. It's also a chance to introduce a new figure into our story, a man who would shape Irish politics into the mid-20th century and play a leading role in the war, Frank Aiken.
Although he would live an extraordinary life, Francis Thomas Aiken had a pretty unremarkable upbringing. He was born the youngest of six children outside Camlock, County Armagh in 1898. His father, who was nearly 30 years older than his mother, died while Frank was still only an infant and he was raised by his mother, Mary. His education was patchy at best. He was known in school as Curlaw, meaning odd day in Irish, a reference to his erratic attendance. It was during his teenage years, however, that a remarkable talent for organising began to emerge. Although he did not participate in the Easter Rising, he was heavily involved in reorganising the Republican movement in its aftermath. A branch of Sinn Féin was established in Camlock in 1917, and Aiken, still only a teenager at this point, was appointed branch treasurer. That summer, he also met many veterans of the Easter Rising following their release from prison camps in Britain when he travelled to Clare to work on Eamon de Valera's election campaign. Then, in March 1918, he himself was arrested for drilling volunteers and served a month in Belfast jail. By 1919 in particular, Frank Aiken had emerged as a senior figure in the IRA in Armagh. Serving as the Camlock Battalion Commandant, he was quickly promoted to Vice Commandant of the Newry Brigade. One of the better organised brigades, by early 1920, they set their sight on a somewhat controversial target, the Royal Irish Constabulary Barracks in the town of Newtown Hamilton, County Armagh. The barracks in the town was modest in size, with a garrison of no more than five or six people, but it was a very difficult target. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. 
Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. The population of the hinterland of Newtown Hamilton was broadly speaking unionist, and it was possible that they could rally to the defence of the police. With this in mind, the IRA initially attempted to capture the barracks by subterfuge that would draw little attention to the action. In mid-February 1920, after cutting telegraph wires around the town, a small number of IRA volunteers, led by Frank Aiken dressed in a stolen military uniform, marched straight up to the door of the barracks at around 9pm when they knew some of the constables were out on patrol. Patrick Casey, who was with Aiken, remembered, Aiken went to the barrack door and knocked loudly. The door opened a little, but on a chain. The constable said, Who goes there? Aiken said, Lieutenant Brown from Dog Barracks. The constable then said, Give the password. At this we knew the game was up. A couple of rounds were fired through the door and we departed. Such a simple approach was always unlikely to work, given the heightened fear the constables were living under at the time. After this, the IRA resolved to carry out a large-scale attack on the barracks. This time, the plan was nothing short of a military assault. This took place on the 8th of May, 1920. While a few dozen volunteers would be sufficient to attack the barracks itself, around 200 individuals in total were mobilised, given the complexities facing Aiken and his men. While the next episode will take a much deeper look at the political and sectarian divides that shaped the war in Ulster. As I mentioned earlier, the IRA considered Newtown Hamilton hostile territory. Given the majority of the population were Unionists and bitterly opposed to Irish independence, this created numerous problems, even in terms of carrying out surveillance in advance of the operation. They feared that even the presence of outsiders in Newtown Hamilton would arouse suspicion. They also had to factor in that dozens of men in the town were members of the Ulster Volunteers and it was possible that they might be mobilised to defend the Royal Irish Constabulary if they came under attack. If this happened, these Ulster Volunteers would prove a formidable force. The adjutant of the Newry Brigade, John McCoy, remembered the fears they had over this force. It was estimated that in early 1920 there were at least 75 Ulster Volunteers in Newton Hamilton in the immediate neighbourhood. Armed with these rifles in each, with sufficient ammunition to last out a small engagement. Their morale was fairly good, and the percentage of them that had fighting experience in the Great War. On the night of May 8th, 1920, the IRA effectively sealed off Newtown Hamilton from the wider region. About a mile outside the town, trees were cut down, blocking all main roads into the town. They were then used as barricades as volunteers took up positions to resist any attempt by military or police reinforcements to enter the town while the attack was underway. Inside Newtown Hamilton itself, a reserve group of volunteers assigned to fight back the Ulster volunteers if they were mobilised also took up positions as well. Then a third group, those who would launch the attack on the barracks, moved into position at around 11pm as darkness fell. John McCoy, the brigade adjutant, led a group of volunteers and occupied a series of ruined buildings across the street from the barracks. Meanwhile, Frank Aiken led another unit who entered the pub adjacent to the barracks. They seized the publican and tied him up, while John McCoy's company opened fire from across the street. 
As the police barracks scrambled to return this fire, Aiken and his unit began to tunnel through the wall of the barracks. Once they had burrowed through the wall, they planned to put explosives into the breach and blow a major hole in the gable of the barracks. However, once they broke through the wall, the police immediately opened fire from within the building. The IRA volunteers then moved upstairs and began drilling a second opening in the wall. It was well into the early hours of the following morning before this was complete, as the second hole alone took around an hour to break through. While this dragged on, it became more and more likely that the Ulster volunteers in the region would be mobilised. Once they had broken through the second wall, however, Aiken called on the police to surrender, stating that if they didn't, he would detonate the charge, destroying the building with them in it. The response was in the negative. The constables said that they would fight on. The breach in the wall was then packed with explosives. A charge was lit and an explosion shook the building. The impact, however, was not what was expected and the volunteers set about enlarging the hole as a firefight with the police on the far side of the wall continued. Frank Aiken eventually managed to crawl through into the barracks but finding himself completely in the dark and fearful if he opened fire, the flash of the muzzle on his gun would identify his position, he retreated. The IRA then settled on a different strategy. They called on the constables to surrender for a final time, but this was unsurprisingly rejected. They then filled bottles with paraffin oil and threw them through the breach and the room was set alight. Indeed, the entire barracks was soon ablaze. The front of the building had been doused with paraffin oil using potato sprayers, so the building was an inferno within seconds. As the fire spread, the police retreated back into a yard at the rear of the building. John McCoy, who was occupying the ruined buildings across the street from the barracks, remembered this sight in front of him. The noise at this stage was terrific. The roof was falling in portions and the slates were cracking with intense heat. The hand grenades, which the police had left behind them when evacuating their post, were exploding. And the police were maintaining a sustained fire from their rifles through the gateway of the yard. While they had been forced from the building, the constables were in a well-defended position in the yard of the barracks. Time was now against the IRA, as it being early May, the sun was due to rise at 5.30am. Confident the barracks was damaged, Beyond repair, the IRA unit now decided to withdraw and after another short skirmish outside the barracks, they left Newtown Hamilton. The scale of this attack illustrated the changing nature of the war. The IRA had come a long way from a handful of men hiding behind a ditch at Salahed Beg. The fact that on that night, another major operation, although not quite on the same scale, had been launched by the Cork No. 1 Brigade when they attacked Cloyne RIC barracks underscores this point. The escalating war was also reflected in the death toll. A recent publication, The Dead of the Irish Revolution, an expansive list of those killed during the conflict, lists 30 fatalities in the last six months of 1919. In the first six months of 1920, this had risen to 140. Within these numbers were very concerning statistics for the authorities. Through the entirety of 1919, 14 members of the Royal Irish Constabulary and Dublin Metropolitan Police had been killed by the IRA. This figure rose to 44 in the first six months of 1920. However, while they were down, the British government were not out. There was no question the opening months of 1920 had been shambolic and they had been completely outmanoeuvred by the Republican movement 
both in the way that the Royal Irish Constabulary had been rendered an increasingly ineffective force, and then more specifically over Easter 1920. Even so, the British government were by no means in the mood for negotiating an end to the war. A series of changes had been underway during these months and these laid the basis for a new administration in Ireland. Warren Fisher, the head of the civil service in Britain, had come to Dublin in March 1920 to conduct an investigation into the British administration on the island. His report was damning and more able officials were sent in from Britain. Further to this, as we saw in the last episode, the Black and Tans were being recruited to boost the dwindling numbers in the Royal Irish Constabulary. Of these new appointments, the most significant was that of Neville Macready, who was appointed as the new Chief of Staff of the British Army in Ireland in March 1920. The reason for choosing Macready lay in the fact that he was considered to be the most politically savvy British Army General. Not only was he experienced in matters of war, but he had a background in policing, having served as Chief of the Metropolitan Police in London, and before World War I had served as Directorate of Personal Services, the division of the British Army that dealt with civil unrest. He also had experience of Irish politics, having served briefly in Ireland before the First World War. Indeed, when civil war threatened during the Home Rule Crisis, he had been selected as the man who would have become military governor of Belfast in such a situation, arguably the most difficult and challenging of all positions, an indication of the high esteem in which he was held. That Macready was an out-and-out racist appears to have had little impact on the British cabinet when they agreed to his appointment. He had revealed his opinions about Ireland in a letter to Ian Macpherson, the chief secretary. I loathe the country and its people with a depth deeper than the sea and more violent than that which I feel against the Bosch. The term Bosch refers to Germans. Such sentiments notwithstanding, Macready led a restructuring of the British government in Ireland that made it more fit for service. While it had been Lord French, the Viceroy, who had convinced Macready to take up the position, it was somewhat inevitable that he was sidelined, particularly after the hunger strike fiasco. While Macready protected French from direct criticism, he was still marginalised and in the following months his administration was dissembled in Dublin. Ian Macpherson, the Chief Secretary for Ireland, was replaced by Harmer Greenwood, who, and at risk of a plot spoiler, was the last man ever to hold the position. From the perspective of London, this new administration was no longer rudderless in the way that Lord French's had been. Despite the Republican movement's successes in early 1920, they now faced a more ruthless and efficient enemy in Neville Macready. In the next episode, we need to move north to Ulster, and specifically the cities of Derry and Belfast, to take a look at the unfolding war there, because some of the local dynamics made it quite different to the conflict in other parts of the island in really significant ways. So until then, Sloan. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.